Hey friends, I'm Jenny Meyer, and you're listening to the Rooted Truth Podcast, where we look at the world through a biblical lens. We talk about real life, biblical truth, and how to walk with Jesus through it all. Be sure to follow me on social at Jenny Meyer and at The Rooted Truth. Also, be sure to subscribe to the members-only, all-exclusive episodes on the Rooted Truth Podcast by going to www.therootedtruth.com. Now let's get started. Are you looking for a conservative Christian community with like-minded believers, one that always points you back to the Bible? Or maybe you're looking for biblically-based studies that take you beyond the surface. We have you covered at the Rooted Truth Collective. As a part of the collective, inside the All Access app, you'll receive live biblical studies, an array of devotions, mini audio guides on different topics, a section on equipping the saints, the members podcast, biblical deep dive studies, an uncensored community, teaching and accountability, real relationships, and live member chats. We are a comprehensive Christian community offering biblical teaching, accountability, and an intentional space to learn and dig deep into God's word. We are a tribe of like-minded individuals with a biblical worldview who use the word of God to navigate this world that we live in. Through our app, studies, devotions, podcast, and resources, we encourage believers to let go of the daily hustle and dive deeper into relationship with the Lord. Join the Rooted Truth Collective today at www.therootedtruth.com slash join. Hey everyone, I have a bonus episode for you today. This is an episode that I released on the members podcast last fall. It is about Daniel's 70th week and the seven year tribulation at the end of time that a lot of um, scholars talk about that comes from this Daniel 9 prophecy. So I wanted to just release this bonus episode for you today. I hope that you enjoy. And if you can, if you are in a place to grab your Bible and follow along with me, I think it's really important for you to have your own Bible as you are listening so you can can read it for yourself. Let scripture interpret scripture. So enjoy. And yeah, this is the one that was released last fall. So enjoy. Here we go. Hey friends, welcome back to the Rooted Truth exclusive. So today I'm going to go over something that I shared on my Instagram stories, goodness, probably about a week or two ago, and it just continues to be on my heart that I, I want to get it out there because I am positive that there are some people listening to this exclusive podcast that are not on Instagram or that did not catch those stories. So I want to talk about Daniel's 70th week. So over the past year, I have been digging into end times, what the Bible says about it, and go going through Revelation. I did the Revelation study with Remnant Rising, which was incredible. And throughout that time, we both came to conclusions like, at different times, but they were the same thing. And so we knew that it was the Lord, you know, teaching us and guiding us where he wanted us to go. But as I've done that, I just feel like everything that I was taught about end times has been flipped on its head, like flipped over. And when you feel like that, it's like, well, where, where do you go from, from here? Right? Like, 
I was taught this, this has to be right. But when you start digging in and reading the Bible for yourself and not relying on the commentary, not relying on what your pastor says about it, but really digging in and asking the Holy Spirit to guide you, to lead you, to show you, to give you discernment on what is truth and what is not truth. And as we went through that revelation study, something just kept bugging me about the seven year timeline. I'm like, well, I don't like, I don't get it. And yes, I was taught that it was seven years that at the end of, of this age, the end of time, the, there would be seven years of tribulation. The first, it would be kicked off when the antichrist made a peace agreement. Um, and then three and a half years through, he would break that. So I was raised with that teaching that there is a pre-tribulation rapture where the church will essentially just disappear, be taken up to heaven before anything gets quote unquote bad, right? Before this great and terrible tribulation. And I was in the era when, you know, in, in that, I guess, time frame of when the Left Behind series came out, being like middle school age, maybe end of elementary, middle school age into early high school. And that was it. Like this, that was like, oh my goodness, like these books, this, you got to share this with everyone. You don't want to be left behind. And I totally believed it. I absolutely believed it. And again, that's what I was taught growing up. But like I said, after the past year, maybe even two years, um, because I think I, I had read Revelation, obviously, um, growing up in the church, but I, I read it again for the first time during quarantine, not for the first time, but for myself, just really digging in um, during quarantine in 2020, that March, and just things weren't sitting right, right, with, with what I was taught. Things didn't feel right in my spirit. And you know, fast forward two years, we did that revelation study and the past year, I mean, after hours upon hours of studying scripture, prayer, most of all prayer of like, Lord, please guide me, please show me, open my eyes to truth, to also listening to other pastors, not just um, what I was raised, not just the dispensational premillennialist view, but listening to other pastors, what did they have to say about it? And then digging in, writing kind of a study on my own with Remnant Rising, God really showed me how to let scripture interpret scripture. Like, okay, so if I'm reading something and it comes to mind, like, oh, I, I you know, I read this when I was in Daniel or I read this in Isaiah, going back and looking that up. So that then led me to see that, yes, we are safe from God's wrath, but wait a second, we're not necessarily safe from tribulation because the early church experienced tribulation. And John, who is the author of the book of Revelation, who was given this vision, he actually said like, hey guys, I'm a, I'm a companion. I am a fellow partaker in tribulation. And with that being said, Christians are not safe from tribulation. They're safe from God's wrath because we have the seal of God on our foreheads. If you've accepted Jesus as your savior and um, you've been born again with the Holy Spirit. That is the seal of God on your forehead. And, and, and that represents you making the choice to believe, to believe by faith and to having walking by faith, not by sight. That is the choice thus being on the forehead. Whereas the mark of the beast, which we're not going to talk much about in this episode, but the mark of the beast, I really feel like 
the Lord is just leading me continue, like continually to go down the path of like, is it a spiritual alignment rather than an actual thing? Um, because it says on the forehead or the hand and the forehead we know represents like, that's your choice. Like we have a choice to follow, follow Jesus. We have a choice to, um, have him as our savior to be born again. That's our choice. God is not forcing us to do that. And then when it says the mark of the beast is on the forehead or the hand, the hand represents like being coerced and being, you know, tricked and like, Hey, do this. And, and I can give you the riches of the world, you know, come follow me. Just like Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, um, right before his ministry. So it just leads me to believe that like, Hey, we're saved from from God's wrath because we have that seal of the Holy Spirit. And I apologize if I'm um, not making a ton of sense. I don't have, I don't have this in my notes for this podcast. I'm going to, I'm basically just going through some of the slides that I shared on my Instagram stories for this, but um, I want to be real with you guys. And I want to share with you what I'm learning in the process. Like, do I fully know what I believe the mark of the beast is? No, that's something that I'm continuing to struggle with. I'm continuing to pray about. And again, you guys, I was raised in the church. I was raised Christian, literally from like born into a Christian family, went to church. It was a non-negotiable. And I was taught this pre-trib, the dispensational premillennialist view of the end times that the mark of the beast is going to be a literal thing. Um, that you don't want to take at the end times, right? Because then you're not saved. And over the past couple of years, that's where I've just been like struggling. And I, I'm leaning more and more towards like, I don't think it's going to be literal. I feel like it's more of a spiritual alignment because anything not with God is against God. So any, anyone who has not accepted Jesus and accepted the Christ is anti-Christ. Um, and there is an antichrist spirit that has been raging from day one in the garden that, that tempted and led astray Eve with, with her eating of the fruit and Adam. Um, so anyways, all that to be said, Christians are not saved from tribulation. We see that in the early church. We see that, um, in the beginning of revelation, revelation one, nine, it says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the aisle that is called, um, Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he is saying, Hey guys, I'm a companion in tribulation. I am a fellow partaker, um, which is the, the usage of that word in the NASB, but I'm a fellow partaker in tribulation guys. I'm going through tribulation too. I am like exiled to the Island of Patmos outside of Greece, writing this to you, getting this vision I'm going through tribulation too. And I really feel like the, the church has been, anyone who's following Jesus has been in tribulation from day one, from the moment Jesus ascended into heaven, there's tribulation. Stephen was the first martyr, which we'll talk a little bit about him too in a little bit. But I mean, it's been going on. Does that mean that, that things are going to get worse? I don't know. Because I think a lot of early church history is hid from us, or at least not taught to us. They went through a lot, you guys. I mean, even in 70 AD, they 
lost over a million Jews that did not read Jesus's words or listen to his words to, hey, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you need to flee. You need to get out of Jerusalem. So the Christians, those who had accepted Christ, did that. They saw the writing on the wall. They saw what Jesus was talking about, and they fled Judea, and they were saved. But over a million Jews who were who were coming to Jerusalem for the annual one of the annual feasts were murdered, slaughtered. I mean, it was awful. The Romans literally took them over. So there has been major persecution. I mean, even look at the Holocaust, which I absolutely think was all planned um, with the deep state. I think that it was all a part of more of the world, um, one world order, the deep state agenda, all of that. Um, and they funded it, the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, they funded it. And then they funded the memorial of it too, which I'll have to do an episode on just the Holocaust because that's eye opening as well. But I mean, look at it, look how many Jews were killed, were murdered. Um, and so there has been tribulation. There's been tribulation and persecution of people following Jesus from, again, the time that he ascended with Stephen being the first martyr. So it has been going on. So yeah, is it going to get worse? Maybe. Is it going to stay the same of like kind of what it is right now? Maybe. Um, Or is God's glory going to shine through and kind of keep taking out these evil forces because we know Jesus reigns until he makes all of his enemies under his, he puts all of his enemies under his feet. So Jesus is reigning right now in heaven. We are in the kingdom age for those of us who have accepted that and accepted Jesus because he is reigning at the right hand of the father right now. So anyways, digging in to revelation in the end times, Daniel's 70th week comes up a lot. And essentially that is the seven year tribulation that many talk about. Um, so people believe that is the, the end, right? That is the last seven years of this world as we know it before Jesus returns um, and we have a new heaven and a new earth. A lot of people think that the church is taken out pre-tribulation, so pre the seven year, um, and they don't have to witness any of this. I do not believe that. And you'll come to find out in this podcast, I don't even believe it's seven years. Um, So again, it was just unsettled in my spirit. As we were going through Revelation study over the past couple of years, I just didn't feel right about this seven-year tribulation period, and I didn't know what it was. Um, so I had to start digging, right? Um, I said it a lot. If you were in that Revelation study, I said it a lot like, hey, if it is seven years. Um, so it just didn't sit right. And I think there has been a lot of people that are kind of feeling the same way that, that I did. Um, so let's talk about Daniel's 70th week. And that's where that seven year time frame comes from. And, um, that is found in Daniel nine. So I want to read this quote real quick from truthnet.org. 
It says, The 70 weeks of Daniel was the message delivered to Daniel from God through the angel Gabriel. The message contained a blueprint for world events revolving around Daniel's people, the Jews, and his holy city, Jerusalem. In Daniel 9.24, Gabriel informs Daniel with the completion of the 490 years on his people and city, which was the 70 weeks, the messianic age will have begun. And let me interject really quick. So the messianic age, that term can be the same term as kingdom age. Um, So that's the age of our Messiah. He is reigning. So back to the quote, it says, however, before the messianic age, Messiah, the prince will be killed or cut off. According to the qualifiers specified by Gabriel, the Messiah is cut off on Passover 33 AD. This corresponds with the close of 69 weeks, 69 times seven or 483 years from the command of the king of Persia. Artaxerxes, who gave word to Nehemiah in Nehemiah 2.8 to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem, Daniel 9.25, to killing the Messiah, the prince, was 69 weeks or 483 years. In Daniel 9.6, Gabriel informs Daniel, after the Messiah, the prince is killed, the temple and Jerusalem would be destroyed by a group of people, descendants of the prince who is to come. The people who came were the Romans, linking the future prince or ruler to the Roman Empire. The 69th week closes with Messiah, the prince, being cut off, but the 70 weeks are not yet complete. The killing of the Messiah stopped the prophetic clock before it was completed. This is one week or seven-year period remaining. This seven-year period begins with the confirming of a covenant uh, with many regarding a future Jewish temple. Okay, so that is taken from truthnet.org. The thing is, the majority of people believe this. At least this is what I was taught. Um, This is the thought process of like, well, hey, we still have a seven-year time frame left. So this is what I kind of want to break down a little bit for you guys Um, and unravel the truth with this. So it's important to know what people believe. So they believe that that prophetic clock literally stopped and that seven year time frame will come at the end of time and begin when the prince, which is they believe is the Antichrist, will make a covenant with the Jewish people standing in the temple. So a peace agreement. And then at three and a half years after that, so halfway through this tribulation period, they believe that there that's when he breaks the peace agreement and there is this great tribulation of three and a half years. Um, so we are going to break this down. Um, essentially, we're taught at the end of time, again, that seven year time frame. However, I'm going to kind of push against that a little bit um, because it's been weighing on my heart the past year or so. And the biggest question I had is why would Gabriel tell Daniel like it's 70 weeks, which keep in mind, he says 70 weeks and one week is equal to 70 years. And all theologians, I believe, agree on that point with the way the um, things have played out. So one week is equal to seven years. So that's why when they say there's one week, the 70th week left, that is 
equivalent to seven years. So why would Gabriel tell Daniel like, hey, this is 70 weeks, this is all going to happen. And then literally after 69 weeks of things being fulfilled, we have a pause and literally have to wait 2000 plus years. I mean, literally, I, I don't get it. It made zero sense to me because I know like God is perfect, right? He knows his timeline perfectly. So I don't know. I just had a problem with like, he wouldn't say this and then literally like have this pause for 2000 plus years, would he? I don't know. Um, And the thing is, is it very specifically said 70 weeks. It didn't say like, hey, this is going to happen. And then we'll wait, you know, and see what happens or wait for that 70, 70th week or wait for the last week. So I want to read you Daniel 9, just in case you're just listening and you don't have time to bust out your Bible right now. So I'm going to read you out of the New King James Bible, Daniel 9. So bear with me um, as there are 27 verses in it. So starting in verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Abersus, and bear with me on some of these names because I do not understand some of these names. So it's kind of funny. Um, Of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, Daniel understood by the books, the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So he, Daniel was literally reading Jeremiah's words of saying like, hey, they have 70 years here, right? Then verse three says, then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity and have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those far off in in the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster for under the whole heaven, such has never 
been done as to what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, and for your city and your people are called by your name. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And for the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consumption which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Okay, so now that I just read Daniel 9 to you, I want to ask you if anything in that chapter seems like Daniel was praying about end times. Was he praying about the Antichrist? Was he praying about 
anything other than his people, right? He was praying to hear from the Lord what would happen to his people, which are Jews. He was praying for his people. He was praying for the city Jerusalem. And there is no evidence he was praying about what the end of the world was going to be like, um, or the last seven years or anything like that. He wasn't praying about that. Again, we see um, Gabriel's response, you know, 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, make an end to sins, make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So, you know, it goes through of of what is what's going to happen in those 70 weeks, right? So we see if we're looking back at the entire chapter in verse two, like I said, um, Daniel was reading Jeremiah's book. He understood that they would be in captivity 70 years. Um, and he, he knew the words of the prophets. He was listening to the prophets. So then he goes on to seek God through prayer and supplication that we see in verse three, um, that he was praying about that, like, forgive us, right? We've sinned against you. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedly. We rebelled. We didn't listen to the prophets. He is seeking an answer for what's next for his people. And if you do have your Bible, his prayer is in Daniel 9, 4 through 19. That, that was actually his prayer. He was crying out to God. And once he's done praying, Gabriel, who is an angel, brings the answer in verse 20 through 27. And I'll let you guys hit pause if you want to go read that again. But looking at this prophecy and what Gabriel says, we can see the points of debate. I mean, with so the points of debate with like the different eschatological views. I mean, you have dispensational beliefs that believe the covenant right, is the one that Antichrist makes at the beginning of the last seven years. And then it's also who is he in that verse, verse 27. So verse 27 says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offerings. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consumption, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So in that verse 27, many say is the, that's the seven-year tribulation. That's the end times. They say that that covenant is one that the Antichrist makes with Israel. And then three and a half years later, the Antichrist will put an end to animal sacrifice in the temple. So keep in mind, the temple needs to be built, the third temple. If you follow this train of thought, you have to have a third temple in order to have the last seven years, in order to have the Antichrist um, three and a half years in this covenant goes in to the temple and puts an end to animal sacrifice. So this belief system believes that there will be animal sacrifices again in a physical temple since the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. But wait a minute here. When you take that phrase, he shall confirm Let's look at the Hebrew word. So that phrase, he shall confirm in Hebrew means to prevail, to have strength, be strong, be mighty. So essentially to strengthen. But I got to thinking in my research, like, okay, so if it's a new covenant that the Antichrist will make, then why does it need to be strengthened? Wouldn't it just say he would make a covenant? 
not that he would confirm it. Um, And so I think it's really important as we're looking at things like this to go back and look at the Hebrew word, go back and look at the Greek word and that original meaning, because it can mean different things than what we think it means in English. So it says confirm a covenant, and I'm going off of um, the King James version and then also using the new King James So it doesn't say make a covenant, it says confirm. It almost appears as if this covenant is already made and someone literally comes to strengthen or to ratify it. Um, And if you want to look up that Hebrew word, it is um, in the Strong's Concordance, it's H1396. Um, Gabar, I believe is how you pronounce it. Um, And it means to have strength, be strong, be powerful, be mighty, be great, um, to strengthen. So it does not mean to make. So let's look back at the first time Daniel mentions a covenant in chapter nine, which is found in verse four, it says, and I prayed to the Lord, my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Okay, so that's the first time Daniel mentions a covenant in this instance, because in this chapter, I mean, it's literally all about Daniel praying, right? So he's saying, Oh, Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him. So it's important in reading the Bible to look at context, right? So where, when, why, who is the author talking about? So if Daniel mentions a covenant in the same chapter, even though we know that the chapters, the Bible was not originally written in chapters, but it's still within the same context within this prayer. And then Gabriel comes and gives him discernment and answers, right? Gives him understanding of this prayer. It's all within the same context. So why would God send Gabriel to answer the prayer yet switch directions totally, right? So he's answering the prayer in verse 24, 25, 26, like here's the prophecy, right? And then all of a sudden in verse 7 or 27, why would he switch directions and say, oh, well, by the way, the Antichrist is going to come and make a new covenant with a peace agreement with Israel. That makes zero sense. So what covenant is he talking about in verse four? He's talking about the everlasting covenant. He's talking about the covenant and the promise that God made to Abraham that um, it's in Genesis 12, one through three. It says, now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. So these are, this is the everlasting covenant. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay. What this is 4,000 years later, 5,000 years later, and we're still talking about Abraham. So that is that everlasting covenant. That's the covenant that God was, or that Daniel was talking about in verse four of, you know, that, that God, you, you keep your covenant, you will bless us, right? And, and curse those who curse us. So if Daniel's talking about this Abrahamic or everlasting covenant in verse four, what would that mean of Gabriel and then answering this prayer or giving Daniel understanding of this prayer in verse 27. 
it would mean that someone would literally come to confirm that everlasting covenant, right? To ratify it. So to me, that makes way more sense than switching directions to a brand new covenant at the end of the world altogether. And it's not saying it's a covenant for seven years or even about a seven-year tribulation period. The word for, where it says can, um, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, how people read it, the word for in verse 27 is actually not in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew text. That was added after the fact. It is, he shall c- confirm the covenant with many one week. So you can see when looking at the Hebrew words, there's only a word. So there's only a word for week when you're looking at those root words. So that word for was thrown in by translators. Um, so it's a deep dive study into the the Hebrew words and understanding with everything. So feel free totally to go. I use the Blue Letter Bible app, um, which I really, really like. So feel free to download that and you can pick any verse, click the verse, you can see the Hebrew words, click on that word and it will tell you what it means. So essentially in this case, it's not a covenant for one week. It is a covenant one week. So within that one week, he is ratifying, he is confirming the covenant. It's saying that he will confirm the covenant in the seven years. So within the 70th week and that in the middle of that week, there would be an end of temple sacrifice. So then who's the he that is talked about in verse 27? A lot of people think that that is the Antichrist, right? That that this is the Antichrist when he comes on the scene, he is going to make a new um, covenant peace agreement with Israel. But I'm going to um, give you a, a different option to look at. So again, in verse 27, it says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wings of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consumption, which is desolate. Okay. So that was the he in there. Okay. So he shall confirm a covenant. He will put an end to sacrifice. So who is the he? Again, a lot of people say this is the Antichrist that raises, like rises to power in the last days. Like it's a one man thing and it happens in the seven years at the end of time. But let's take a closer look. So a couple verses prior to that, again, we have to look at the context here. So a couple verses prior to that, Gabriel is speaking in verse 25, it says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, the wall even in troublesome times. Okay, so pastors teach that the Messiah, the Prince in verse 27 is Jesus, which is correct. And then in verse 28, I'm sorry, in verse 25, and then in verse 26, Messiah is Jesus, right? So I would agree with that because it says in the beginning of verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Messiah and Messiah the Prince, that's Jesus. Everyone tends to agree on that, right? Um, But if Messiah the Prince is Jesus in one verse, wouldn't, when you're looking at the people of the prince in the next verse, 
okay, who's the prince? The prince is Jesus, Messiah the prince. Why would the prince be the Antichrist? Um, so, I mean, you have to start looking at these things and teachings and with the, when they don't sit right with you, dig into the Bible. So we're looking at this phrase, Messiah the prince, that's in verse 25. What do most people teach? They teach that that's Jesus. What makes more sense, right? That's Jesus. I agree with that. Verse 26, Messiah. People teach this is Jesus, which I agree with. Then you move on to people of the prince. What do most um, pastors teach or most dispensationalists teach is that that is Roman leaders. So they're Roman. So then it, that that wouldn't make sense, right? If the prince is Jesus, wouldn't the people of the prince be the Jews, that makes more sense to me. And then moving on to the next verse, verse 27, the he, why then all of a sudden you're pulling from nowhere talking about an antichrist when the last couple of verses you've been talking about Jesus. If people say the he in verse 27 is the antichrist, it actually honestly breaks the rules of grammar because the he in verse 27 has to point back to a noun. So what's the most recent noun used? Messiah, the prince, or the prince, which people agree is Jesus. So why that that he in verse 27 has to be Jesus? Um, because it's the subject of verses 25 and 26. So we're staying with that noun. We're staying with that subject in verse 27. It's Jesus. There is no noun that points to an antichrist in any of those verses. So Jesus and the people are the theme of Gabriel's answer to Daniel. So who are the people? Because in verse 24 tells us that the people are Daniel's people, right? So verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. So the people are the Jews, your people, Daniel's people. Those are the Jews. So Daniel prayed in verse four again, and I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O oh Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. And then Gabriel came and answered, gave Daniel understanding to that prayer, which all pointed back to Messiah the Prince, all pointed back to Jesus coming to confirm the covenant the covenant that Daniel specifically prayed about in verse four, which is the everlasting covenant. It's not about an antichrist making a new covenant with, with Israel in the end times. So Daniel was specifically praying for his people, the Jews and his city, Jerusalem, not the end times. So this is, I know a lot, especially if you guys hadn't caught my stories on this, but it's really, really important to understand this part when you're looking at end times, because I don't believe that there is a set seven years like people talk about. So again, as a quick review, one week is equal to seven years, as as we'll see how that plays out here shortly. Um, and most pastors would agree that the 69 weeks played out as Gabriel said, but then we're in a waiting period and we're waiting for this 70th week at the end of time, which I, I don't believe to be true. We see the covenant that Gabriel spoke about in Daniel 9.27 is the same covenant Daniel prayed about in verse 4, the everlasting covenant God made to Abraham in, in the book of Genesis. So Abraham told Isaac 
in Genesis 22 that God would provide a lamb for the burnt offering, right? So if you know that story, God said, hey, sacrifice Isaac, like put your son up there. Abraham did. He was about to kill his son. Um, But prior to that, he told Isaac, God will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. But when Abraham was about to kill his own son, God provided a ram, not a lamb. So essentially, they were still waiting on the lamb to be sent, that ultimate sacrifice to be sent, which was with Jesus. He was that sacrificial lamb. He is the lamb as we see in the book of Revelation. We also understand that the pronoun he used in verse 27 is not that of the Antichrist. Rather, it's referring to the previous noun usage, which is Messiah the Prince, which we know is Jesus. So these, with these two things, it lead us, leads us to the conclusion that Gabriel is not talking about an end-time, end-time Antichrist making a covenant. He's talking about a Messiah coming to confirm or ratify the covenant that was already in place. Jesus came to confirm the everlasting covenant that God made with Abraham. So let's keep on digging in. So we're going to start back in verse 24. 70 weeks are determined upon thy holy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So 70 weeks are determined on what people? On thy people, Daniel's people, the Jews. To what? To finish transgression? to make an end to sins, to make reconciliation of iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness. So what did Jesus do when he died, when he was buried, and when he was resurrected? Jesus put an end to transgression through his blood. He made an end of sins by his blood. So sin no longer has a hold of us if we're in Christ Jesus, Romans 6 14 says, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So Jesus made an end of sins, right? By his grace, we are saved. Our sins are washed away. We are made clean. Jesus also made a reconciliation for iniquity by his death, burial, and resurrection. And then he brought everlasting righteousness to those who believe in him, right? So overall, can you see how Jesus fulfilled this? He fulfilled this. Um, He fulfilled that 70 weeks. So then if we jump forward again to verse 27, where it says, in the midst of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Okay, so that's like um, in the middle of verse 27. So what happened after Jesus's death? His blood paid the ultimate price. There was no longer a need for animal sacrifice. The veil in the temple was torn. So there was, we have direct access to the Father. So when he died, we got direct access. So I'm going to actually read a little um, snippet from the Day of Atonement section in the Biblical Feast study that I actually just um, wrapped up with my friend Remnant Rising. So it says, according to Jewish tradition, the priest would tie a scarlet cord of wool around the horn of a scapegoat and a second cord to the entrance of the Kadesh section of the temple. Okay, so keep in mind, this is specifically talking about the Day of Atonement, okay? 
So the priest would lay hands on the scapegoat for a second time and recite a confession of sin and prayer for forgiveness. Then another priest was chosen to take the goat to the precipice in the wilderness where it was thrown over a steep and jagged cliff so that its body would be completely torn apart before it reached the bottom. Once the sacrifice was complete, a supernatural phenomenon occurred. The red cords that were tied to the horns of the scapegoat and placed at the entrance of the holy place supernaturally turned from red to white to symbolize that although Israel's sins were crimson, God had washed them white as snow. That's with Isaiah 1.18. So when this occurred, it publicly bore testimony that Israel had been forgiven. This supernatural phenomenon stopped after the sacrifice of Christ, exactly 40 years before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, signifying his ultimate offering. Okay, so did you catch that part? So this supernatural thing occurred with these cords on the Day of Atonement, on the day where their sins were forgiven once a year, this cord turned white, but it stopped literally the next day of atonement. Okay, so that would be the fall. So we know that Jesus died in the spring and with the um, spring feast. So then the fall feast, one of those is day of atonement. When they did this, that what, six months later, not even six months later, It didn't happen that year. It literally didn't happen again after Jesus died. This literally shows us that Jesus put an end to sacrifice, which fulfilled Daniel 9.27. God was saying, no, you don't need to do this anymore. You don't need to sacrifice that goat to cleanse your sins. Like, nope, Jesus already did that which is just so cool to think about. It is so, so cool. And I know I talked about, I believe I talked about that in um, the previous episode about the Ark of the Covenant. But um, so now let's look at the word many in verse 27. It says that he shall confirm the covenant with many. So who are the many? Hebrews 9.28 says, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. You guys, we are the many. We are the true Israel. Israel is how Jacob had his name changed. So Jacob had his name changed to Israel when he committed, when he committed to God. It was after he wrestled with God and he, he gave up. He's like, all right, God, like it's all you. I believe you. I will do what you say. That's when his name changed to Israel. And because of what Jesus did, when we believe, we are true Israel. We are Israel. Jews and Gentiles who believe that Jesus is the one and only son of God who died and rose for us. That's who Israel is. We are the many that Jesus came to confirm the everlasting covenant with. And we see in Hebrews 12, 2, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Who is Jesus? He's the author of the covenant, which is why he was the one that came to ratify it. He is the finisher of this, of the covenant. Hebrews 13, 20 says, now the God of peace that brought again 
from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. I mean, that right there tells you what he did ratified that everlasting covenant, the blood of the everlasting covenant. Jesus confirmed the everlasting covenant with his death, which is a complete fulfillment of Daniel's 70 weeks, complete fulfillment. So a lot of people are like, well, okay, I get that. But when did this actually start, right? What was the starting point of the 70 weeks, um, that prophecy? When was the decree? Because it doesn't line up with a lot of what people say, right? So it says in Daniel 9.27, the starting point of the 70 week, I'm sorry, Daniel 9.25, the starting point in the 70 week prophecy would be when the command or decree came to restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So that starts our timeline, the decree to restore and build the city. Okay. So those kind of seem like the same thing, right? Restore and build, but they're not. It wasn't about just restoring and rebuilding the city Jerusalem. It was about the people too. It was restoring the people of Jerusalem, restoring the leadership, restoring the political and religious leadership within the entire city. That's when things are fully restored, not just the physical rebuilding of the temple, but a restoring of the physical city and the people and the structure of the city. The Jews were Jerusalem, okay? Just like we, Israel, we are holy Jerusalem. So with that being said, in order to find the date that this all started, we need to find the right decree that was issued. And many people think it was when King Cyrus first released the captives, but that was not a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So we need a decree that tells the Jews to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, but also restore the leadership politically and religiously. So we have King Cyrus in 536 BC first issued a decree for the Jews to rebuild the temple, but that's not what we're told, right? It didn't say to rebuild the temple. Then we have Darius in 520 BC issued a decree to continue rebuilding the temple. Then we have in 457 BC, King Artaxerxes issued a decree to Ezra. So taking a look at that, that is found in Ezra 7. So essentially that decree was to rebuild and restore. So Ezra 7.25 says, And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who were in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed. Okay, so we are seeing right here, right? That is restoring the people, the leadership, right? Saying, hey, Ezra, go set judges in place, do it. So that is restoring the leadership. That decree sounds way more um, like it matches the restore and build, okay? So that is the decree, which is 457 BC. So based on many scholars, the decree from Artaxerxes was again, 457 BC. So if the 70 week prophecy started in 457 BC, we know that the 70th week would start 483 years later, which would be in 27 AD. 
Okay, so 27 AD. What happened in 27 AD that would affirm the Messiah, the Prince, based on Daniel 9.25, right? That it says, until Messiah, the Prince, there shall be 69 weeks, or I'm sorry, seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is 69 weeks, okay? So it says that will happen. 69 weeks will happen until the Messiah, the Prince. So that gives them, so that literally gives these Jews the exact time of when Jesus would show up. And you know what? They still rejected him. They knew. They knew when he was going to show up. And in 27 AD, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus started his, his ministry in 27 AD, which started the 70th week of Daniel. And then when was he killed? He was killed three and a half years later in the middle of 30 AD, in the middle of the 70th week, which fulfills Daniel 9.27, where it says, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And then what happened when Jesus died? Sacrifice was no longer needed. He literally put an end to it. The Jews were given the exact time their Messiah would appear, and yet they still rejected him. So based off of Daniel 9, they would have known it was him. If they knew this prophecy, they knew and they believed the words that Daniel said, that Gabriel said to Daniel, they would have known it was him. That's why many of the disciples were actually looking for the Messiah. So some some of them knew, they knew he was coming based off of Daniel's prophecy because it was the beginning of the 70th week. We see Andrew tell his brother Peter that, hey, we found the Messiah. They were actually looking for him, which is so cool to think about. One, it says in John 1, verse 40 and 41, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated to Christ. We have found him. He, they were looking for Jesus. They knew. They knew he was coming. So then looking at verse 26 again, it says, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. So that is verse um, 26 of Daniel 9. So the people of the coming prince, which we know the prince is Jesus, shall destroy the city. So who are the people? The Jews. And what does destroy mean? When you look at the Hebrew word or the phrase, let's say, shall destroy, it means corrupt. It means corrupted, to ruin, to pervert, corrupt morally. So what did the Jews do? Literally, what did the Jews do? So when we read that, if we read that with that um, Hebrew definitions, we could read that phrase as essentially this, the people which are the Jews of the coming Prince Jesus shall corrupt the city. And what had the Jewish leaders done by the time Jesus came? They literally corrupted the city and the temple. And at that point, the high priests were all corrupted. That's why Jesus threw over tables in the temple. The people, the priesthood, the temple were all corrupt. And then verse 26 goes on to say, And at the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So to the end of what? Gabriel is talking about the city Jerusalem and the temple. So he's talking about the end of the city. 
It was the Jews that lived corruptly, which brought on the desolation of the city. Gabriel told Daniel that the city would be utterly destroyed after Messiah was cut off. This is why Daniel grieves for three weeks, as we see um, in the beginning of chapter 10, because he knew his people would reject the Messiah and the city and the temple would be utterly destroyed because of their corruption. So then what happened 40 years after Jesus died? That's what happens. Everything was destroyed, the city, the people, the temple. So then as we wrap this up, um, what about the next three and a half years, right? To wrap up, to kind of close out the 70th week. Over the next three and a half years after Jesus died, the disciples were still trying to preach to Jews, right? They were rejected though. Many, many of the Jews, especially the Jewish Jewish leaders, rejected them. And then in 34 AD, three and a half years later, Stephen was martyred. He was the first Christian martyr. He was the last attempt at reaching the Jewish leaders. And then what did they do? They stoned him to death. And then after that, which this part I think is just so cool, what happened right after Stephen's stoning? Paul who is a partaker, I mean, his name was Saul at that point, he was a partaker in Stephen's death. He encountered Jesus and he was forever changed. And his name was changed from Saul to Paul and his ministry began and it was to reach the Gentiles. So at the close of the 70th week, the door to the Gentiles was opened. And the following year was also the year of Jubilee, according to some scholars from what I have seen in my research. And to be honest, it wouldn't surprise me. The year that the Gentiles began to be grafted into God's family is such a cool picture. So I absolutely believe that Jesus coming, shedding his blood for us, fulfilled the 70th week of Daniel, that that honestly so many things think is about the Antichrist. He came to ratify the everlasting covenant. He came to put an end to the animal animal sacrifices. He sealed up sin and transgression. And all that was done, it, it was all done in the middle of the 70th week. Literally, we are told that in Daniel, Daniel 9, that this would happen in the middle of the 70th week. And that happened in 30 AD. So I believe that that pronoun in Daniel 9.27, where many people say that he is referring to the Antichrist, honestly, I think that is blasphemy against Jesus, to be honest. Like, you guys, this, this prophecy is about Jesus, the coming Messiah, who would cover the sins for all times. So I'd, I mean, just as what's so crazy is just as the Jews didn't see Jesus as the Messiah when they had these words from Daniel, from Gabriel. They had these words, but they still rejected him. I think that's what's happening today as well, is that, hey, we have this, but we're not listening to God. We're listening to man, and we're being taught false things with this 70th week and making this prophecy, this beautiful, beautiful prophecy, how Jesus absolutely fulfilled this and making it about the Antichrist. So it's just crazy. I I mean, I do not believe that there will be a seven-year time period of tribulation at the end of time. I don't. That doesn't mean things won't get hard. I mean, it doesn't mean that there won't be an Antichrist 
However, I feel like the Antichrist has, has been around for a long, long time, and I'll have to do another um, episode on that, um, on the Antichrist. But as we wrap up Daniel 9, this prophecy was fulfilled with our Savior, right? And the doctrine of the 70th week being the seven-year tribulation period at the end of time, it literally came out of after, it's like it came out of the counter-reformation. So the reformation happened because they were pushing back against the Catholic Church who stopped putting Bibles in any language but Latin because the popes were the only one that knew the only ones that knew Latin. So then the Jesuit Council, which is so intertwined with the Pope and I believe completely, completely evil, um, they put out this counter-reformation and they're the ones who started this whole process of um, what the end times would look like, what this, what this Daniel 70th week, the basically taking that and making it about the Antichrist, which is so wrong. It's absolutely wrong. And honestly, if people believe this false doctrine, you would believe that sacrifices would have to be resumed in a temple. So there would have to be a literal third temple like rebuilt which I don't see anywhere in scripture as prophecy that there will be a third temple. Um, you'd have to believe, again, that animal sacrifices would have to be resumed in order for the Antichrist to put a stop to them. You would have to believe that this Antichrist would defile the third temple. And honestly, think about it this way. For a temple to be defiled, it implies that God has to sanctify the temple first. So that would imply that God would be accepting those sacrifices, that he, his glory would be in this temple. But we know all throughout the New Testament that we are the temple. God's not accepting animal sacrifices anymore, right? He, he's not going to sanctify a temple. We are the temple. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We are the temple. The overall body of believers of Christian believers are the temple, the church, right? Now, I'm not talking about a church building. I'm talking about the people. And then we individually are temples. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? There is no third temple in Daniel 9 prophecy. There's no antichrist within the Daniel 9 prophecy. So can you see what believing that doctrine will get you? It'll get you waiting for a time period. It will get you setting dates. It will get you waiting for this temple to be rebuilt, waiting for the start of the seven years. Some literally are quitting their jobs and sitting around waiting for the rapture. Like, I'm not even kidding. A couple of you guys have actually told me that you have family members doing that. You guys, we are called to occupy, to spread his kingdom because we are living in the kingdom age. So I know some of you will say, well, they're leading that way to build a third temple. So does that mean that a third temple won't be built? Not necessarily. It very well could still be built by non-believing Jews um, or even built by the actual enemy trying to deceive us, um, possibly the Catholic Church. It wouldn't surprise me, but I do not believe that it will be because God is telling them to build it. It's a huge, huge deception. And... I just think it's really, really important, right? We are the dwelling place. We are the temple. 
the Hebrew word of dwelling place or temple that Paul uses all throughout New Testament. And then even in Second Thessalonians, it, it, it's this dwelling place, right? That the Holy Spirit dwells in us. So I hope that you guys learned something in this. Um, overall, as far as the dates, I believe that it was 457 BC that King Artaxerxes signed a decree for the Jews to restore and rebuild their city. This was the start of the prophetic time clock, 27 AD. That was literally at the end of 69 weeks. So 483 years later, Jesus was baptized and started his ministry, the Messiah, which Gabriel had promised would come after 69 weeks, was here. 30 AD, in the middle of the 70th week, so three and a half years after his ministry, he was crucified, which was being cut off for the sins of the world. 34 AD, which was three and a half years later, at the close of the 70th week, Stephen was martyred. This opened the door for Paul's conversion and ministry to the Gentiles, and this closed the 70th week prophecy that closed it 70 week prophecy of Daniel 9 proves Jesus is who he says he is so of course Satan would want to deceive people with this prophecy so um, yeah I hope you guys learned something in this he is absolutely he absolutely fulfilled it and um, I in the description of this podcast I'm going to put a link to a book that I got that literally changed everything for me and explained it way deeper than I did in this podcast it's where I got a lot of the information though um, from this book so it is in the description of this podcast I really really encourage you to go and take a look at it um, because it's so so good and I hope to be back um soon talking a little bit more about the Antichrist um, and how it's it, how in relation to the popes um, and the Catholic Church because there is a lot of connections with the little horns of Daniel 7 the fallen Roman Empire Empire how the Catholic Church the Roman Empire changed times and laws they literally removed the second commandment about idol worship um, and so honestly, the Pope fulfills the role of the son of perdition as well in Second Thess- Thessalonians 2. Um, so I really don't think we're waiting for this temple, this third temple to be built. I don't think we're waiting for this Antichrist to make some peace agreement. It's not prophecy. It's not going to happen like that. Um, we are waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. We are waiting for every person to know and have that choice to choose Jesus as their savior. And then he will come back, which could happen at any moment. So anyways, you guys, I hope you enjoyed it. And I will be back um, in a couple weeks with you. So have a great one, guys. See ya. Now, if you just enjoyed that content going through the Daniel 9 prophecy and how a lot of people think it relates to the end of times, but the scripture is clearly not talking about the end of times. So if this intrigues you and you want to dive more into the book of Daniel, I encourage you to join us as we will be diving in to study the entire book of Daniel, all the prophecies of the book. There are many of them and how 
many of them were fulfilled, how we are still waiting on some. So I encourage you to join us, check it out via the link in the show notes. We start July 6th and we will be going throughout the whole summer meeting once a week. And don't worry if you cannot join live, you can view the replay um, afterwards, as well as you will have access to our full study. It is over 150 pages long such good material in there. So go check it out via the link in the show notes of this episode. 